beloved congregation of the Lord, when the Holy Spirit led Dr. Luke, that uh, fellow servant of Christ with the Apostle Paul, to write this great gospel book, he addressed it to a particular person. If you read chapter 1 of Luke and verse 3, Luke writes, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee, in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Well, isn't that an interesting name, children? Theophilus. How would you feel if maybe someday your mom and dad had a new baby and they told you, we're going to name our new child Theophilus. Well, that isn't a very common name today, but it has a very beautiful meaning. It means lover of God, lover of God. And it appears that uh, this person was a Christian, someone who'd confessed faith in the Lord and been instructed in the ways of the Lord. And now Luke has investigated the whole story of Christ Jesus and his uh, life from the very beginning, probably interviewing uh, members of his own family and committed these things to writing. We don't know much about this Theophilus, except that some have suggested that he might be uh, a governor or a civil leader of some kind, a person of influence, because he's called most excellent Theophilus. And if you read Acts chapter 24, verse 3, you see that's also how a governor was referred to, most excellent or most noble Felix there. But in any case, I hope that as we continue on in this series through Luke's uh, gospel book, that each one of us will be led to be true Theophiluses, lovers of God. Lovers of God, as the name denotes. Everything in this book is calculated to bring us to a greater awareness of the grace and the goodness of God to us in Christ Jesus. And even where some of these stories are extremely familiar, I hope that as we work through them, the Lord will stir us up within our hearts and souls to seek a fresh sight of the glorious grace of God in Christ. And in that way, we would find ourselves filled with love and adoration for him. To that end, we come to the second narrative contained in chapter 1, last time considering how the angel Gabriel appeared to that man, Zacharias. And you remember, children, that encounter, while it explains some great things, the birth of John the Baptist to these women, Zacharias and Elizabeth, when they were very old and, and couldn't have children, Yet it ended in sort of a sad note because Zacharias had unbelief towards the message from God. And so God, to punish him, made it so he couldn't speak or hear. Well, now we see that the story continues in verse 26 of chapter 1. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel 
was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David and the virgin's name was Mary. So six months later we see how the same angel now appears to Mary. I want to show the, um, the main doctrines of this portion of scripture under the theme Christ's birth foretold. I thought that was a more fitting than the title found in your bulletin, so we'll use that. Christ's birth foretold. And we'll divide it really in, in two sections. First, the glory of the Lord and the servant of the Lord. The glory of the Lord and the servant of the Lord. Well, I would put to you that the glory of Jesus Christ, it shines forth from the earliest portions of this history as it concerns his conception to the Virgin Mary inside his mother Mary. And as it predicts something of his birth and ministry and kingdom to come, these things are most precious to the true child of God. They are not just for one time of the year. They are for 365 days of the year. The truths of the incarnation and the coming of Jesus into the world are the most precious things that foster in our hearts love, faith, and joy in Christ Jesus. And we're... I think about how the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ shines forth here. I would think of his condescension in the first place. Condescension, children, that's kind of a big word. That just means when someone who is important, they stoop down and humble themselves to, to interact with people who are not so important. So we see the great humility of Jesus in dealing with a very humble family as that family to whom he would be born. You notice how those early verses which we read take us to a place called, uh, called Nazareth, Nazareth. And Matthew Henry writes here, that she that is Mary lived in Nazareth, a city of Galilee, a remote corner of the country, and in no reputation of religion or learning, but which bordered upon the heathen or the Gentiles, and therefore was called Galilee of the Gentiles. You see, Many of the Jews, they were expecting Messiah to come, but they weren't expecting him to be born in this sort of place, to a, a humble little family in a humble little corner of the country of, of, um, of Judea, there in the region of Nazareth. You see, they would have been looked down upon by some of the people in Jerusalem. The center of everything was in Jerusalem. The religion, the government, the, the worship of God, the teaching authority of the people. But isn't it amazing? When the angel of the Lord came to the very heart of everything in Jerusalem, in the temple, 
he found that there was unbelief in that man, Zacharias. A godly man in his own way, and, and yet he found that he was stumbling, stumbling at the word of God. He didn't believe as he should. But now we see that the Lord sends his angel to this place of Nazareth. There's other things we can learn about this family. You'll notice that even though throughout church history, sometimes Christians' imaginations have gone wild and they they try to supply all sorts of details that are not in the Bible about Mary and Joseph. But there are some things that actually are highlighted by the Bible that we need to pay attention to. One is that this was a poor family. We know that they didn't have much money at all. They didn't have power, prestige, or wealth. We know that from later on in Luke's gospel in chapter 2, verse 24, when they present their baby to the temple, they can only bring two turtle doves as an offering rather than the lamb and the, the pigeon that was prescribed. You see, the law of God allowed for very poor families, if they couldn't even afford a lamb, to bring two pigeons or two turtle doves instead. And so they would not have had much money at all. We read as well in Matthew 13, verse 55, that this Joseph, this Joseph to whom Mary was espoused, to whom she had promised to marry, that he was a carpenter, a tradesman. He engaged in honest work and skilled work, but perhaps not the kind of work that yielded a lot of money for his family at that time. He was called a carpenter's son. Later on, Jesus was, though indeed he was not truly the son of Joseph, as we will see. And we also will understand from this text that the fulfillment of the prophecies concerning Christ, they hinge upon this fact that this woman Mary, to whom the angel will come, she is descended from the line of David. David. We read about that, didn't we, children? How David, the great king of Israel, had been given special promises to his seed, that is, to the Messiah, the son of David, that a kingdom would never depart from him. And so God has bound himself by covenant, by promise, to the descendants of David. And yet, at this time, the, the descendants of David are not so powerful and rich. You see, in these days, you had the Herods were on the throne, different people of the same family by the name Herod succeeded on the throne. And they were not only from, not from the line of David, they were actually Edomites, Edomites. And so it was that the prophet Isaiah could say in chapter 11 and verse 1, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch as shall grow out of his roots. And he hears that the house of Jesse or David has fallen on such hard times that the rod or the stem of Jesse will spring forth in obscurity, not with great prominence, but in a way that you would almost miss it. It says in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2, 
of the Messiah, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Well, so it was that from his origins, we see the condescension of the Lord in, in coming into such a humble family. And there was something about that, you see, which was fitting. It was fitting that it would require faith in the promises of God to behold the glory of God in such a humble beginning. We just read, didn't we? There was no beauty in him that we should desire him. Here he is, the promised Messiah, and yet for the great many of his countrymen, there was nothing to stand out, nothing to be highlighted that would draw their allegiance unto him. But so also today, so many people, they regard Jesus as just a historical curiosity. Why is it? That it's the year 2023 going on 2024. Well, it's just a, just a curiosity. We happen to name our calendars by the birth and reign of this man. Perhaps they just regard him as a good teacher or, or someone who bestowed to humanity a particular religious philosophy. But to you, child of God, you know that he is more than that. Where his beauty is veiled to the unbelieving world, to you he is precious. Though to the heart of unbelief he is a rock of stumbling and of offense, to you he is the cornerstone laid of God, where the great purposes of God shall be fulfilled and the great salvation of God shall be realized. To you Christ is everything. And so it is God is pleased to reveal his servant, the Messiah, in this humble beginning to show his condescension. I would say as well that the glory of the Lord is revealed in his messenger. In his messenger, we notice that and in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored. And the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. Well, it doesn't say what she was doing. Maybe she was doing some chores around the house. Maybe she was praying. Maybe she was meditating on the things of God. Maybe she was planning for her wedding to her fiancé. Whatever it was, it seemed that she was alone, perhaps in some morning like any other morning, and suddenly there in her presence is an angel of the Lord. He's come from the presence of God, children. And now she's in the presence of this simple young woman. It's no wonder 
And she was disturbed by this. She was concerned. What, what could this mean? Sometimes we have this sort of picture book vision of angels. We see it's just a person in a white robe with maybe some, some wings and a halo above their head or whatever, maybe just in an, an adorable expression, the sort of thing that would just, you know, warm your heart. But it's striking that whenever angels are described in their encounters with people, f- people feel overawed and filled with wonder. However it was, this angel appeared to her, and it doesn't say how the angel appeared. She was disquieted by this. Sometimes we maybe think of that great vision that Isaiah saw in the heavenly throne room in Isaiah chapter 6, where he saw that vision of the Lord in his glory and the trains of his robe filled the temple. And he says there in Isaiah 6, verse 2, above it stood the seraphims, the angels. Each one had six wings. With twain, he covered his face. And with twain, he covered his feet. And with twain, he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Well, surely the angels would delight in nothing more than than to stay in the presence of God, declaring his holiness, but they also submit unto the will of God, and they go to accomplish the good for his chosen people. And so the angel is here, there, in the presence of this simple woman. It says in Belgian Confession, chapter 12, he created the angels good to be his messengers to serve his elect, some of which are fallen from that excellency in which God created them into everlasting perdition, and others have, by the grace of God, remained steadfast and continued in their primitive state. It's a glorious thing to be in the presence of an angel, and so it is that the glory of the Lord shines forth in this, brothers and sisters, that uh, such a Heavenly announcement should come not only to one woman, but to all the church. That God himself, through his messenger, the angel, would testify to us that which is most necessary for us to know. That only in Christ Jesus is salvation found. There is no other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. But in particular, I would say that the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ shines forth through his person. For in what the angel says next, we see that it concerns particularly things that are to instruct our faith concerning the Messiah. Verse 30, And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. Well, so much We can meditate on there. Let me just focus on those words. He shall be great. He shall be great. It almost seems like an understatement in this context. But even just stop and and reflect upon what that means. The word greatness or mega in the Greek, mega, 
It refers to persons eminent for ability, virtue, authority, and power. Maybe you remember in the last message we saw in Luke 1, verse 15, the angel had said this about John the Baptist. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord. Though others would not look on John the Baptist as a particularly great man, but more as like a wild and a troublemaker of a character. In the Lord's eyes, he would be a great servant of God. But here it doesn't merely say that he will be that Jesus will be great in the sight of God, but it says that he will be great, period. He is the one before whom everyone will sooner or later confess his unparalleled greatness. In his prophetic office, he testifies of the greatness of God's wisdom in his revealing the will of God. In the greatness of our great high priest, in that role he renders a perfect sacrifice of himself to redeem great sinners. As the great King of kings and Lord of lords, he reigns over all. And so it is that his greatness knows no parallel and no equal. He is the one of whom the apostle says in Philippians 2 verse 9, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Indeed, we see he is a great person, but this greatness of his person does it not revolve around his name, his name, Jesus, Jesus. We've seen a number of times, children, that names are very important in the Bible. And this name, Jesus, does any one of you know what this means? Jesus. Well, it means Jehovah saves or Jehovah is salvation. What a fitting name that Jesus should choose for himself. You know, Jesus could have chosen any one of a, any number of any personal names to testify of himself and who he is. But he chose this. that We would know that not only does salvation from sin and salvation from hell and salvation from judgment come from him, but that we would know that he himself is our salvation, that he himself is the one who is the deliverance from sin. For to know him is to be redeemed. To belong to him is to be snatched from the wicked one and to be brought into the fellowship of the sons and daughters of God. His name, salvation, it is a mighty tower that even the weakest and the smallest of his children and trembling and fear can flee to for refuge. His name Jesus was given unto him through the mouth of an angel. And we read 
as well that this person he is true God, true divine person, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. Son of the Highest, where he is called the Son of God, you see that there is a, uh, a shared nature with God the Father, the Father who is the highest of all, before whom there is no creature who can be equal or accounted as one whom God will share his glory with. But from eternity, God the Father has been with God the Son, together with God the Holy Spirit, the one and true God. And so it is that he is to be worshipped, he is to be adored, he is to be magnified as the very Son of the Highest. Not only because he will be called such, but because he is such. Not only that this is revealed in his incarnation and birth to the Virgin Mary, but that from eternity he is the only begotten Son of God. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice here that also in his kingdom, in his kingdom there is this person testified to. We see, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And in that we see that there was a glorious fulfillment of that prophecy which we read from Second Samuel chapter 7. Let me just read some of those things that the prophet Nathan said to David on um, on that occasion in 2 Samuel 7. And when the days be fulfilled, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers. I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Now, some people are puzzled by this prophecy because on the one hand, if you read the book of Hebrews chapter 1, it is explicitly quoted in reference to Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, there are some things that don't really seem to fit well with the person of Christ. For example, the phrase in 2 Samuel 7 verse 14, where it says, If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him, and so forth. Because, of course, Jesus never knew sin, nor was ever capable of sinning. And yet, what you see in that prophecy is that there's sort of a dual fulfillment in the person of Solomon, David's um, first son. There is a partial fulfillment as you see that the kingdom of God starts to be manifested with him and as well with the other people within the line of David. 
But you also see that there are certain things that cannot be fulfilled, particularly the fact that of the reign and the, and the throne of this kingdom, there will be no end. This, of course, could only be fulfilled with the Messiah. So it is that the prophet Isaiah, long after, long after Solomon was dead, he spoke in this way in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And of course, last year we discussed this in some depth, what that means. What does it mean by the throne of David? And we, we saw that when you trace out that theme in the Bible, what it particularly denotes is the church, is the throne of the Messiah. For... The church of Jesus Christ, it exalts in our Messiah and our King. We elevate him and we lift him high in our worship and in our praise and in our adoration. And so it is that though the spiritual reign of Messiah covers all persons and all things in its authority, yet it is those who receive him in their hearts and lives that are especially the kingdom of Christ. They are the throne of Christ, the heart of his kingdom. And you notice how it puts it that he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom. There shall be no end, as the prophet spoke, so also does the angel. Though all the devices of hell and the devil and this unbelieving world should be arrayed with one voice and with one arm against the kingdom of our Christ, yet they shall never prevail. For the gates of hell will never prevail against the kingdom and church of our God and his Christ. So it is that there's so much here, brothers and sisters, that testifies to this glorious person. Oh, if our hearts do not sing with adoration towards the glorious Son of God at the things revealed here, then we must examine ourselves. Do we yet know him? Are we yet dead in our sins? If we can hear of him and not find that we are stirred to joy and wonder and praise. The glory shines forth not only in his person, but also in his incarnation. I used that word earlier, children. Incarnation, you see, is where we refer to the conception and birth of Jesus Christ. The conception and birth. His coming into the world, being born of the Virgin Mary. And that, you see, is particularly testified to here. We notice that in response to some of the things that this angel is saying, the, 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 um, the woman Mary is sort of puzzled. Read in verse 34, And then Mary said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? You see, she's not married yet. She's never 
known a man before, not in that intimate way as marriage allows. And so how is it, how is it that she could see these things realized? And this sort of question, you see, is very different from what Zacharias asked. Zacharias asked a question of unbelief that was sort of challenging God, whereas she seems to take for granted that everything that the angel says from the Lord is true. And yet she wants to know how this will come about. Matthew Henry writes here, Had she been a proud, ambitious young woman that aimed high and flattered herself with the expectation of great things in the world, she would have been pleased at this saying, would have been puffed up with it. And as we have reason to think, she was a young woman of very good sense, would have had an answer ready, signifying so much. But instead of that, she is confounded at it, at it as not conscious to herself of anything that either merited or promised such great things. And she cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. Some of Wonder, maybe it was the case that she knew that even the prophet Isaiah had said that the Messiah would be born to a virgin. Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. But however it was, she couldn't understand how is this possible? Indeed, don't we, when we hear great and glorious things of the Lord, don't we want to hear more? Don't we want to pry into these things, at least to catch a glimpse of what God is doing? Remember that when, um, when the Lord servant Moses, he saw that burning bush, he was, he was compelled to go in and, and look closer. What is happening here? What is God doing? So also, as we stand on this holy ground, let us seek to understand what we can of the incarnation of Christ. Verse 35, And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So you have the description is given in these two ways. It won't be an angel that will perform this work, nor will it be a mere man who will perform this work. Surely, no, it will be God, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Remember, children, the very beginning of the Bible, it says that in the it says there in the beginning, before anything else happened in Genesis one verse one, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The Holy Spirit, you see. He was involved in the creation of the world from that nothingness and void and chaos of the first creation that God made. 
So also as the Holy Spirit hovered over those waters, so it also comes to hover over this woman, Mary. In some mysterious and great and glorious way, God is involved in something utterly new. Something that breaks away from the curse of Adam's descendants. And the curse which he visited upon this creation. A new start, a new beginning, a new creation is manifested here in the birth of this child, a glorious work. The great theologian Peter Van Maastricht in his uh, systematic theology writes this, Spiritually, he, the Holy Spirit, will do in you what a man in such matter does carnally. Namely, he will separate some small portion of your flesh and blood to be the offspring. He will prepare that portion for this use. He will ward off all uh, intemperance from which sin might afterward arise. I will arise, namely, so that a holy thing might be born of her. He will unite the human nature with the divine person. All those things together, and in particular those last two, The guarding from all sin is so important. You notice it says that holy thing, that holy thing, the person who is to be born here is to be holy and undefiled. Though a true man with a true body and soul, he will be completely sinless. Without the curse of the law of sin, without the inclination to sin, without the guilt of sin, He will be completely holy, harmless, undefiled, the spotless Lamb of God. And likewise, there is the union, the union of the true humanity with true deity in the person of the Son. He says, therefore, also the holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now, all sorts of confusion has emerged here over the years. How are we to understand this glorious union of humanity and deity in one person, two distinct natures, not confused, not muddled together, but each one pure and distinct and yet inseparably joined together in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, There's some things here that defy our understanding. You know, I think there's something of that here where it says that the Holy Spirit will overshadow her. There's something here that's too holy to be uttered, too uh, beyond our feeble understanding to truly grasp or contain. And yet we see that the God who can do all things, he can yet... Do this. He can inseparably join together true humanity and true deity in one person so that he is true God may create the worlds and speak all things into existence. And he as man may suffer, may, may die, may rise again for our salvation. Here is what the apostle says in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. This is what should really fill us with wonder. Whenever 
we reflect upon this, maybe when we hold a baby in our hands, when we consider the miracle of any new child born in any mother, we need to understand that that reminds us of how the eternal Son of God stooped down lower than we ever could have imagined in order to bring us into his kingdom of light, love, and salvation. It is this that fills us with joy and love towards our King and Savior. I would point us not only to the glory of the Lord in this passage, but briefly as well, the servant of the Lord, the servant of the Lord. And I want us to note what it is that Mary says in response here. We read in verse uh, 36, And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. A couple of things I want to speak of here. First, you notice how the Lord comforts his servant, his handmaid, Mary. You know, sometimes where the Lord deals with us individually in a in a powerful way, whether he calls us to a great duty, like he did to Mary, whether he asks us to endure great affliction, as indeed that would be part of Mary's calling as well, or just if he works in some unusual way with some kind of experience. One of the most glorious things the Lord can do to comfort his people is to bring alongside a fellow believer. I think that was something uniquely precious about this whole story, that this older woman, Elizabeth, who was related as a cousin, that she was uh, set forth by the angel as a companion, as a mentor. It's a wonderful thing where the older women can come alongside the younger to mature and and to disciple them. It's a wonderful thing where fellow believers, brothers and sisters in the Lord, can bear one another's burdens and share one another's joys. It's a precious thing, the communion of the saints. It's precious in the sight of the Lord. And it's one of the ways that brings comfort to the people of God. But it's primarily God himself who brings the comfort, isn't it? He says in verse 37, With God nothing shall be impossible. If the things promised to us in the Bible, brothers and sisters, if they depended on any creaturely might and power, then our comfort would be in vain because something or other could frustrate the promises of the Bible. But the promises of the gospel and of the scriptures, they rest upon the invincible power of the almighty God. None can stay his hand. None can resist his will. All things are possible with our God. And it's where we come to rest upon the sovereignty and the sovereign will of God for our salvation that we may know the comfort that Mary also knew. I would speak not only of her comfort, but also her submission. Verse 38, And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. You know, it's striking that in so many ways her faith mirrored that of her ancient ancestor David. You line up 
what he had said when Nathan gave this prophecy to him, and essentially that was exactly the same words. Be it unto me according to thy word. Not just the the word of an angel, but of God who had sent the angel. The word of God was the foundation of her faith. And so that being the case, she gave wholehearted submission to that word. She leaned her whole soul upon it, for she knew it could support her weight. She called herself the handmaid, the the slave of the Lord, because she knew that to be a servant in the house of the Lord is better than to dwell in the ways of wickedness and self-sufficiency. She is a model for us, brothers and sisters. It is our lot and it is our calling to be content as but servants of the Lord, to surrender our whole lives unto him, knowing that he cares for us much more than we care for ourselves. The angel departs from her. The mission was accomplished, and now there was but for her to believe and trust. These are the things that should also characterize us on this Sabbath day. May we treasure these things in our hearts. May we expect God's will to be fulfilled in the full gathering of the kingdom of Christ. And may we, as true lovers of God, cherish the revelation of Christ's coming. Amen.